everybody. Today we're going to be in Hosea chapter 1 and as, as we continue to worship and, and come in and, and look into the Word of God and, and what it has to say into our lives. Last week we started off with all this by saying Romans 5.8 I really think encapsulates everything that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks but it speaks about the love of God. It says but God has shown his love for us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us. God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that's the picture of it all. And as we come in and, and look this week, that's, that's where we're going. I want to mention a couple of things. Um, one out in the foyer, there's some of these uh, bottles. They're for the uh, pregnancy center. If you'd like to fill one of those up, they, this is uh, one of the things they do for fundraisers for the ABC um, Life Choices Pregnancy Center. And that's a place that's... Uh, a very uh, positive way to approach people and, and um, help them to carry their pregnancy, uh, help, help women who are in, uh, have a pregnancy that, that are, would consider that, you know, whether or not they want to continue that to keep that. And so it's a great positive way to do that and also to share the gospel with them and to help them through that process. So um, anyway, that, that's a, a great organization. We have several people in our church who are involved in it. And then the other thing I, I just found out recently, in about three weeks, um, our youth are going to be leading our worship service. So I'm looking forward to that. We've seen several of them um, up here participating in, in the band. I'm excited about that, excited to see that. So um, we're, we're looking forward to that. I want to welcome you, and, and we're going to be in Hosea chapter 1. So the first thing in Hosea chapter 1 is God's word is timeless. In, in the first verse, um, it, it really kind of speaks this. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So <clears throat> the word of God, it came to a specific people in a specific place in a specific time, and, and there's a specific context that's going in with that. And, you know, typically we kind of open up a book in the Bible, and, and if it has a bunch of names and it says, you know, the word of God came during this time, blah, blah, blah. You know, first of all, you say, can I even say those names? Um, and, and you wonder, you know, did I say it right or did I read it right or how does that go? Or really, I mean, honestly, kind of what does it have to do with it all? You know, you, you look at all these names and all these people and all this stuff and, and there are bunches and bunches of names in the Bible, and very few of them are easy to say. And, and sometimes they repeat in different places. You know, same name happens over and over again. But as we come in here, um, this, this is important because Hosea is one of four of the 8th century B.C. prophets. So the great prophets in the 8th century B.C. in Israel, so about 760 B.C., these, um, God begins to speak to the people of Israel. He begins to speak to them through the prophets, and he is calling them to come back to him. Uh, another way of putting that would be today, I think that you know, our nation could use a prophetic voice to say, return to me, return to me, come back to me, come back to where you began, come back and, and restore um, your relationship with me that we should rebuild on the foundation of God rather than the foundation of man. So <clears throat> he comes to this people in the 8th century BC and he along with Amos, Isaiah, and Micah are, are the uh, prophets that begin to speak during this time. Hosea and Amos are in the northern kingdom in Israel. So these two guys are there. And then um, 
Isaiah and Micah are in the southern kingdom. They are in Judah. So basically, Hosea dates from about 760 B.C. to 710 B.C. <clears throat> and just, just hang with me for a minute. Because when you come in and take this first verse and you kind of put it in context with what's happening in their time, what, what we're going to see is it's modern-day America. It is us. The Word of God is timeless, it's relevant, it, it meets us right where we are, and it speaks truth into our lives. So this is an incredibly prosperous time in the, the history of the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, this might be the most prosperous time. This might be the most prosperous time during the whole history of the nation of Israel would be in the 8th century B.C. Um, from 786 to 746 B.C., Jeroboam II ruled in the northern kingdom. From 783 to 742 B.C., Uzziah ruled in the southern kingdom. Uzziah might be a name that's familiar with you. Um, Isaiah chapter 6 begins, In the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So that's Isaiah's call. So that's where that name pops in. But these were two very skilled statesmen and politicians, administrators. They had great administrative gifts. They had great political skill. They were very much at the very, very top of their game. They were not bad leaders. They were good leaders. They were very good in their nation. And it was a time of milk and honey. I mean, it was a time where the stock market didn't do anything but go up, where everybody was happy. Everybody looked at it, their paychecks went up. Things were getting better and better and better and better. They had built a very strong economy. They also had no external opposition. During this time, they had no foreign enemies who were pressing on their borders. So they were very, very strong. They were doing very well, and because of that, they were able to focus on internal problems. So as they were able to do all of this, no international issues or anything else, they, they became very, very self-focused, and, and they became very prosperous as a result of this. And having said all of that, the people became very materialistic. They became very much about themselves and their comfort, and this led to moral decay. Social problems grew during this time period, drunkenness, debauchery, idolatry, um, false religion, Baal worship, insincere worship, false worship. You know, basically they just kind of went through the motions, they showed up, and that's about it. Um, it's a situation, if, if you come in and, and we look at it, and, and, and you think, you know, idolatry, well, what? idolatry, it's been going on forever. It goes on in our culture just like it does in every other culture. Um, it just manifests itself in different ways. We don't have little statues that we put up on the mantle that we go bow down to or whatever. Um, but, but we definitely have things that we idolize, things that we allow to take the place of God within our lives. So it's a situation that, that we look at and we go, you know what, I, I can see that. I can relate to that. I can see that in our own nation. I can see those things happening even here today as we come in because our God's our material pleasures, and those pleasures drive us to want more for ourselves and to think less of others. Another way of putting it is we want to win. 
We want to win. We want to win. And we'll win and we'll do what we can at all costs because this is just what drives us and it's human nature to go in this. So Amos, if you come in and, and, and you want to get a taste of the 8th century BC, you need to go over to the prophet Amos. Amos was a migrant laborer. So if, if you would come in today, today if, if Amos was living in, in our culture, if you were down in the south, he would be a Hispanic who had crossed the border maybe illegally, and he came, he's coming in to pick fruit in California, Arizona, Texas, wherever. So he, he is a migrant worker. He is at the very bottom of the pecking order socially and, and so forth. So um, he, he's coming in, and here's what he says. Hear this word. In Amos 4.1, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. <laughs> cows of Bashan, what in the, who's he talking to? He's talking to the women. Never call a woman a cow. Never, never, never call a lady a cow because it is going to get an immediate, an immediate response and it's not going to be good. Amos, migrant laborer in the northern kingdom says, hear this, you bunch of heifers. <laughs> this is what you're like. Who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Bring that we may drink. I go, what, what's that about? So, look, I don't care what you have to do. I don't care who you have to crush. I want more. I want more. In chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, it says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and to make it known how he has been violated by the Israelites. Israel is described as a people of... Um, <clears throat> so Israel, as, as we come into this, um, Israel is... is um, okay, I'll flip two pages instead of one. Taken in pledge and in the house of their God, and they drink the wine of the house of those who have been fined. So as, as we come in, what Amos is saying is saying, look, here's what's happening here. Um, you have people who have taken a garment and pledge. And you say, well, what in the world's a garment and pledge? A garment and pledge is saying, I went and I, I owe you something, or I borrowed, say I borrowed five bucks from you, and I gave you my coat. And I said, when I give you your five bucks, I want my coat back. So that's a garment given in pledge. Well, the thing about it is, if somebody gives their outer garment in pledge, it means that they've got nothing else. They're dirt poor. I mean, they're at the very bottom of it all. And, and in the law of Israel, in, in what God had said, said, look, if you take someone's garment in pledge, you have to give it back to them at night because otherwise they'll be cold. They need something to keep them warm when they sleep at night. And, and what it's saying is, is you're, you're not doing that. You don't care about anybody. All you care about is yourself and, and lining your pockets. You will, you will take advantage of the poorest person on the block just so you can get another pair of shoes. Um, so you need to have some morals, some scruples. You need to have some compassion for 
others. So as, as we come in, this, this is what, um, what he's saying. He's, he's saying that um, a father and a son share the same woman. This, this should never be so. Paul talked about the same thing in Corinth. He said, you've got this going on in your church. You think it's good. What in the world's, what in, where, what's happened? What's going on here? What's wrong with you? Um, so, so as we come in and, and begin to look at this, um, we see that, that something is terribly amiss in the northern kingdom in the midst of all their prosperity, in the midst of everything that's going on. Underneath, there's this thing in there that's, that's bubbling up that's unhealthy, and it's going to destroy them. And God's saying, this is, this is something that has to be corrected. You see, God's word is relevant to us today. It's just as relevant to us today as it was 2,800 years ago. Look, we can come into our country and we can talk politics, we can talk economics, we can talk all kinds of stuff, but I'm telling you, our issues are hard issues They're not political, they're not economical, they're not any of that, because when our heart issues are right, we can settle all the other stuff. Because it's all about us, it's all about me. I want more, I need more, I desire more, I want more pleasure, I want more of whatever that might be. So the the word of God clearly addresses the problems of prosperity, because prosperity does have problems. And, and those problems are is that we become reliant upon our prosperity rather than upon our God. And, and we seek, that's, that's where we begin to seek our pleasure rather than to find pleasure in God. So these problems haven't changed. They're the same today as they were 2,750 years ago in Israel. Just the same. same. Same thing, just a different place. And God's word clearly directs us on how to manage this. In Hebrews 4.12, um, Hebrews puts it like this, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit um, to both joint and marrow, and it's able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. For the writer of Hebrews, he said, look, here it is. If you'll come to the word of God, the word of God will cut to the quick in your life. The Word of God, when, when you put yourself up against the Word of God, what, what the Word of God does, and it's not fun. The Word of God shows, when, when, I, when I read the Word of God, it reveals my heart to me. And it shows me what's at the very base of the issue. And then it forces me to deal with that and move in the direction that God would have me. So um, when I say it's not fun, it's, it's not fun in that it's, it's never fun to be corrected by God. It's very pleasurable when he pats us on the back, and he does that in his word as well. But, but when he moves us to that point, it, it's a whole nother thing. But this is where, where we come in. And so as I'd say that, you know, um, I encouraged you last week, read through Hosea. Read through it two or three or four times. Um, read through it as we go through this and, and begin to take some notes and, and think about what God's saying in that and how it relates to us today. And, and as I've read Hosea, uh, I just have to say Hosea has read me. And sometimes it's not been fun. But in all of it, I think it's really good because it moves each of us as we come to the Word of God. It moves us to where we adjust our thoughts and intentions. So in the middle of everything that that we have going on in our world right now, where's the best place to go for direction? The Word of God. 
the Word of God. Because the Word of God is timeless. And then the second thing in verses 2 and 3, not only is God's Word timeless, God requires faithfulness. He's got a timeless Word, and He requires us to be faithful to that Word. In verses 2 and 3, now we're getting into what you're familiar with in Hosea. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So as we come in, there's no doubt what God thinks about Israel. There's absolutely no doubt the picture he is painting her. And he is painting her as a faithful, uh, as a faithless, a faithless wife who is chasing after other lovers. So this is how he's painting her out to be. So the picture that he's painting in Hosea is troubling. I mean, honestly, when we come into verses 2 and 3, you go, wow, man, I never thought I'd hear the preacher talking like that. It's just the scripture. Because you see, the Word of God, when, when we talk about the Word of God being living and active and piercing into our hearts, the, the, the interesting thing about the Word of God is God doesn't mince words. He, he, he comes to us in pictures and, and calls people cows and heifers and, and uh, whores and, and things like that, that that we might not do in polite conversation. But when God wants to get our attention, He's anything but polite. He's direct and to the point, and he comes to us and, and just, boom, there it is. Bring it on. And, and so there, there it is. So God is going to extremes to make it known to the Israelites how they have violated him. Here he is. So here's Hosea, this young man, 760 B.C. He is beginning his ministry as a prophet. Put it this way. He has just gone to seminary. He's with all the other preachers wanting to be. And they're, they're talking about everything that's going on, and, and, and they're coming up, and, you know, this guy's wife's this, and this guy's wife's that. What's your, my wife's a whore. I mean, that, that's, that's the picture that's being painted. So he's coming in, and it's very, very dark and, and as we come in this. But, but this is how he's describing God is saying, this is who my people are. They're a people who have prostituted themselves to other gods. There are people who have sold themselves for nothing. There are people who have violated their covenant relationship with me. And these are all terms that, that immediately, everybody in the room, we all have an immediate emotional response to them. Immediately. We immediately see it, and we immediately drawn to it. And that's the beauty of the Word of God. And and that's the timelessness of the Word of God, is that He can come in and do the things that we in a, quote, polite society won't deal with. So so He's doing this, and, and He's describing their covenant relationship, and God is describing the covenant relationship with Him as a marriage. He's describing it as a marriage. It's a covenant that we enter into, and our marriages are therefore to be seen as covenant relationships. This is just an aside. Just an aside, as you come in here today, if you are married, your marriage is not a partnership. It's a covenant relationship. 
It's a relationship that says, I will be everything that I have committed to in this relationship. I have given myself fully to you. I will be fully known by you as you will be fully known to me. And this relationship cannot be violated in any shape, form, or fashion by anything. Nothing, nothing can ever come between us. We can never allow that to happen. So this is how God is describing this. And we come in and we begin to see this. And we see these metaphors as they're being played out in real life. God is playing them out, enacting them in real life, in real people. Um, So he has done this. In Matthew 19, 5 and 6, Jesus said, Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now you're probably familiar with that, and and you're familiar with the context of it. When when the Pharisees and Sadducees were asking Jesus, "Is is it okay for man to divorce his wife for any and all reasons? And Jesus said, You know what? You missed the point. You missed the point. Here's the point. Here's the point. And and so he comes in. You see, it's not a relationship of convenience, but one of permanence and commitment. It says that when when I took my wife, she became my family. Not my mom and my dad, not my brothers. That my primary responsibility, my primary relationship was my spouse, not my family. My dad even told me as much. He told me long before I ever got married, he said, look, son, when you get married one day, you'll have your own family. We'll always be here. We'll always love you, but that will be your responsibility. Your responsibility will not be to us. Your responsibility is to your spouse. Those are great words. They're great, great things to take and to understand because they build strong, strong marriages, a strong covenant relationship. And, and this is what is, is being seen as we come in and we lay this foundation in Hosea. This is, this is where we see it. So <clears throat> it's this one where we leave something behind and we become one with someone else. And this is what happens when we follow Jesus. We leave everything else behind and we become one with him and we follow him. And he becomes our primary um, goal in, in everything in life. That's the corollary in the, in the Bible is the church is the bride of Christ. So that's who we are. And he promises that he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. Our relationship is to be one with him that's unadulterated. Nothing else can come in and sever that tie or dilute that tie or make it less. It's, this is where the language of Hosea really drives it home. It's reflective of Jesus um, as he begins to speak to this because Hosea goes and marries this this woman of, of horrible character. Horrible character. Unclean to all the people who are there. They're just like, man, she is untouchable. Stay away. Do not let your sons go near her. Keep your kids away. Nothing good can come from that. There is nothing good there. And, and what does God say? I want you to go marry her. I want you to go redeem her. I want you to go bring her back. So in that, what God is saying is, is I've come for sinners. I've come for people who have violated me. I've come for people who have turned their back on me. I've come for the worst of the worst. Jesus put it this way in Mark 2.17. And said, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, Jesus came to all of us. He came to all people. And, and God said, the whole land is messed up. The whole land is defiled. The whole land is, is out of control. And I am sending you to the land. 
I'm sending you to the people so they can see this played out. And and so God reaches out to us when we're at our worst and He invites us into this covenant relationship with Him. His invitation is to a nation whose spiritual condition is destitute and the whole land commits great whoredom. This is what He said in Exodus 2-3. God spoke to the people in the first of the Ten Commandments. He says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery and brought you into Israel and you shall have no gods before me. You see, Israel had moved from being faithful to God. Israel had moved from their honeymoon with God and from their love for God and their desire to God to idolatry, to finding fulfillment in the prosperity. They found their fulfillment in pleasure. They found their fulfillment in adventure. They found their fulfillment in fun. They found their fulfillment in stuff, in things, in wealth, and and, uh, politics and prosperity and everything that goes along with it. That became their God. And they look to their alliances with the nations around them for security. We, let's go back to verse 1. In 745 B.C., the biggest, baddest dude that ever walked the face of the planet as, from a military perspective was a guy named Tiglath-Pileser III. He was the Assyrian emperor, ruler, military dude. He was one bad guy. You did not want to be conquered by him. You did not want to be conquered by the Assyrians. When the Assyrians came and conquered your nation, it existed no more. They carried you off into exile. They brought other nations into your nation and and they intermingled those cultures and they became nothing. There was nothing, nothing left. Cultures were destroyed. Peoples were destroyed. Everything was gone and it was changed forever. This is who this guy was and this is what happens in 722 BC. But but, um, they formed an alliance when, when he came to power rather than turning to God, rather than crying out to the God who had delivered them, rather than remembering that they were slaves in Egypt and God brought them out with great power and authority. Here's what they did. They formed an alliance with the Moabites, the Edomites, the Philistines, and Syria. Not Assyria, but Syria. They formed formed an alliance with, with the godless nations around them rather than turning to their God. And they, the people had forgotten their deliverer. They'd forgotten who they were. They'd forgotten that they were betrothed to God. And the parallel for us today is how many ways have we compromised our covenant with God in order to keep feeding our idols? I mean, how many ways do we compromise who we are so that we can stay on the path that we're on rather than returning to the God who loves us? To the God who brought us here. I mean, when, when we come in, if we look, we, we look that we move further and further and further away from the blessing of God, more and more and more into something that just seems like it can never quite scratch the itch. And then the final thing is the ultimate cost of idolatry. So the word of God is timeless. It demands faithfulness. And the ultimate cost of idolatry is extreme. Absolutely extreme. 
he goes on and he says, And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by the bow or by the sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. So this is the charge that, that Hosea begins. So let's talk about these, these uh, children who are born. The first one is Jezreel. Jezreel. The, the names of these kids are a clear indicator of the heart of the nation. They give us a really good look in it. And, and we think in individual terms in our culture. We think of us as individuals. We think of my life, my relationship with God, my connection, and so forth. But this was a culture more focused on the people or a group or the nation. These were people who saw themselves as part of something bigger, not of individuals. They weren't individualistic people in that response. And Israel was a people, and God's response to her affected everybody. It's going to affect everybody. Look, it's going to affect Hosea. When, when the Assyrians crush Samaria in 722 B.C., Hosea is going to be right there along with them. He's not going to be miraculously spared. He's not going to miraculously go back into his room and, and, and watch his flat screen TV and watch the ball game while everything falls down around him. It's not going to happen. He is going to suffer along with the nation. They understand that as the nation goes, so go the people. And, and so he comes in and he sees, he, he sees himself in this way. So Jezreel means God sows. It means God sows. So um, it's also a place name for where many bloody battles took place in the ancient Near East. So um, for instance... Uh, Deborah, the battle of Deborah, the battle of Gideon, the battle of Jehu. These are all battles that occurred in Jezreel. In 2 Kings 10, 28 through 31, um, you read the the final thing about the battle of, of Jehu, where Jehu goes in and he utterly destroys the house of Ahab. Utterly destroys the house of Ahab. Wipes off all of them. And it says, then thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth in generation... Your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made, which, which he made Israel to sin. So as we come in, he wondered, this is the place where Naboth's vineyard was. If you go back to Jezebel, you know, you hear the word of Jezebel. Well, Jezebel was a real person. In the Bible, Jezebel, um, her husband Ahab wanted this vineyard that Naboth 
Naboth had. Naboth was a, a godly man, a good man. And Naboth said, I, I can't give you my vineyard. I can't sell my vineyard. This is what God has given to me. This is to be passed down from generation to generation to generation in the, in the nation of Israel. And so uh, Jezebel said, tells Ahab he's all sold up because of it. And she says, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. She brings in a couple of scoundrels and they make false accusations against him. And they take, uh, they take um, <clears throat> Naboth out and they kill him. And then she tells her husband, Ahab, hey, go get your vineyard. There it is. Problem solved. So this is the kind of woman Jezebel was. She was bad news. So this is where it happens. So she has Naboth framed and murdered there in Jezreel in this place. So this is the type of place when we talk about Jezreel, these people understand Jezreel. They understand that Jezreel is not a good place. And God's saying, you call your first son Jezreel because it's going to be a bloodbath. It's going to be bad. It's going to be ugly. And, and so... Um, these are just a few things that went down there, but, but basically Jezreel is synonymous with bad. Bad things happen. There, interestingly, um, the place of destruction for Baal was also the place where God would sow a harvest. So God's going to come in here and destroy Baal. He's going to destroy them in, in Jezreel. And later in, in the book, we're going to see that God will sow a harvest there as well. He will also sow for a harvest in the future. So when we come in and we look, and, you know, I don't want to just scare the snot out of you today and say, you know, God is going to come and he's going to exact punishment for every wrong that we've ever done. Well, that's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that God will punish sin, but he is also a God of grace and mercy. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we're going to come in and, and do that. So God will so, do that. So the next one is no mercy. She's the daughter. Um, <clears throat> Lo Ruamah is, is the name in Hebrew. And that means no mercy or unloved. And, you know, every baby dedication we've ever done here, there's never been any little girls named no mercy or unloved. Nobody names their daughter that. Nobody's going to do it. You know, and if you do, we're going to slap you. You know, and just say, that's just dumb. Who in the world would, would put a label like that on a little girl? Um, but this is what God says. And, and why? In James 2.13, we, we see, it says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. In other words, to those who have never extended grace, there is no grace. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This sums up the way that these people have treated the poor. They've trampled them. They've trampled over them and they've used them. And, and what God says is payment is going to be exacted. For the way that you've treated the poor among you, there will be payment exacted. If you go into the book of Nehemiah, you're going to see um, uh, about 150 or so years later, you're going to see that the people in, in Judah, they had still not gotten this message. Even though Israel was destroyed and this was one of the counts against them in the book of Nehemiah you see that there were some people who had sold their neighbors into slavery so that they could get ahead and, and Nehemiah calls them on it and says this is wrong this is what the other nations do we don't do that to each other we're better than that we are better than that we serve a God who has taught us better than that so so that's where it, it comes in so um, the final child is called Lo Ami, Lo Ami, or not my people. So the final thing he says is, these are not my people. Now, you know, some people say, well, Hosea's saying, that's not even my child. I'm not even the father. Maybe, maybe not. But 
But what God is saying clearly, he says this is, call his name not my people for you are not my people and I am not your God. Now listen to that for a minute. You are not my people and I am not your God. They claimed to be a part of God's covenant people, but their lives reflected something absolutely different, something totally different. Jesus said, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus said this, he said, look, every, good tree, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So one of the things that, that sometimes we, we kind of gloss over is, is the importance of our actions the importance of our actions because it's our actions and not our words that define who we are for instance I've been here about 25 years be 25 years later on this year so in 25 years you've watched my actions you've watched my actions You've seen me at ball games. you've seen me out in the community you've seen me on the river fishing that's a scary one and, and but you've seen a lot of stuff You've seen a lot of stuff. And if my actions did not align for the most part with my words, you wouldn't be here, would you? You wouldn't. You, you, you wouldn't be here. You would say, we need to get rid of him and get someone who's real. And, and that's just normal, you see, because it's our actions and not our words that define us. And, and this is... This is true, too, uh, from a biblical perspective. We, are, we belong to God not because we do the right things. We belong to Him because Jesus paid the price. God has shown His love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, okay? That, let's, let's just get that one in. Let's get that one in. We didn't do anything to earn it. He did it all. But because He did it all, we want to do for Him. You see, you can't get a grasp on that and not understand that He bought us out of whoredom, that He came to us at the very depths of our sin, that He loved us in spite of who we were, that we were His enemies, and He came and died for us. That makes you want to serve Him, right? That makes you want to please Him. That makes you want to do something. It's like if you were in slavery and somebody came and, and paid your debt to get you out, you would forever... Think highly of that person, and in any time they called, you would say, I'll be there. I'll be there. I will do it. That's, that's, that's who he is. You see, that, that changes us, and it results in a changed life. You see, as followers of Jesus, we're supposed to be becoming more like him each day. That's, that's the thing. When we understand the grace of God, it should drive us further into the things of God. And, and so this is where we're coming in in Israel. They have forgotten about the grace of God. They don't, they don't even understand anything about it because they're entitled people in a prosperous nation who are totally consumed with themselves and their stuff and the things going on around them and their politics and everything else. And they forgot who brung them there that's just it they forgot it they forgot how they got to where they are and so this is where they are you see as followers of Jesus 
We desire to be like him. It's not that we know the right things to say to give the right questions. That's not the way to heaven. Having the right answers isn't the way to heaven. It's not saying that I know the details and I know the facts. It's saying that, that, that I encountered those things and they changed my life because I met Christ through them. And I have been placed on a different path. You see, knowing and serving Jesus is the way to heaven. It's knowing Him and serving Him. And those two things go hand in hand. Um, it's like if you've ever read the book Pilgrim's Progress, I've been reading through that um, this, this year, and, and there's, there are different characters in there. But it starts off, it was written in 1678, so it's way old. Get a modern, get a modern update, okay? Unless you like Shakespeare, get a modern update. But John Bunyan wrote it when he was in jail. He was a pastor, and, and he was put in jail for preaching the Word of God. And so while he was in jail, he wrote this story, and it's an allegory. And it's an allegory of, of moving from the city of destruction to the celestial city, moving from this world to heaven. And, and so Christian, this guy, he starts off on this journey, and he begins to go through, and as he's gone through several, you know, I'm, I'm up to the sixth chapter and the fifth chapter, um, he's on the journey, and he's just gone through the valley of the shadow of death, and he looks up and he sees a little ahead of him on the path a guy named Faithful. And so Christian runs after Faithful and catches him, and they begin to go on the journey together as they're heading towards the Celestial City. And as they're on the way to the Celestial City, they run into a guy named Talkative. And, and I love, the names are so great in here. And Talkative is, is really, he's just able to talk it up a storm, man. He is able to just talk about all kinds of Bible stuff and, and theology and, and all of it. And Faithful goes, goes to Christian, man, Christian, this is great. This guy's great, man. I think he's going to be a great companion on the trip. And Christian goes, oh, no, he's not. I know this guy. He's all talk. He's all hat and no cattle. You know, he's got nothing. And, and, and Faithful says, well, I don't, I don't know. And Christian says, look, just ask him how it works in his life. Just ask him to share how that's working in his life. And so Talkative comes out, and he just spells out a big, beautiful you know, soliloquy on how everything is and biblical terms and everything else. And, and Faithful says, so um, how are you doing that? And he goes off on something else, but, but, and he keeps on. And finally, after a little bit of being pressed to say, but how does that work in your life? And he has no examples of any reality in his life. He just gets angry and says, fine, I'm not going with you anymore. I'm done. And, and that's it. And, and what it is in the story is saying, you see, there are all these people we encounter in our lives. And, and some of them, they can talk up the story really well. They know all the right things to say. But it's never impacted who they are. It's never changed them. You see, and, and this is what God is saying here. He's saying, they're not my people. They're not my people. Just because their name is Israel, just because they live in the borders, just because they know where the temple is, just because they can do this, that, and the other, that doesn't mean anything. What means something is changed hearts and changed desires, and, and it's coming and coming towards him. You see, this is, this is what God wants us to do. Israel could spout off stuff, and they could claim a heritage, but they were not God's people because to know God is to serve God. To know God is to serve God. To know Jesus is to be changed by Jesus. And 
as we begin to look into our own lives, we come in and, and, and we're, we have a great danger. We face this great danger because of grace. This great danger because of grace is we say, well, there's nothing I can do to make myself a Christian. Jesus did everything. And we look at it and say, you know, Jesus did it all, so I don't have to do anything. And Jesus said, if you understood grace, you would never have that attitude. If you knew me, you would never have that attitude. You would know the depths of your despair, and you would know from where you came, and you would have a desire to worship me, you would have a desire to serve me, you would have a desire to come before me, like the song we sang earlier, and, and so forth, that no matter what was happening, we would worship the one who came and gave everything for us. We have all kinds of things that, that we describe and, and, and so forth, and, and we throw things out there, but I want to tell you something. It's following Jesus. It's following Jesus. It's understanding our sin and our despair and the fact that he and he alone can cover that. Crying out to him for mercy, receiving that mercy, and rejoicing by following. That, that, that's the deal. That's the deal. That's where it comes down. It, it just comes down in some several ways because the, the, the true test of reality is that we follow. That's the true test of reality. It's not saying some words. It's having him change our hearts. John put it this way in 1 John 2, 4 through 6. It says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is what John says. He said, look, if, if, you, if you say that you abide in Christ, you're living like him. You're living like him. That's, that's, the, tre that's the, the thing. Now, as we come into this, <clears throat> you go, man, um, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I love Jesus. I, I really try to follow Jesus, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I don't know that I'd describe myself as abiding in him. That's not, that's, that's not what, what we're coming at here. None of us are sinlessly perfect. There's not a perfect person in the room. None of us. We all sin. As a matter of fact, the stories you come in is, oh, Christian and faithful, they're talking about it. And Christian says, man, I really messed up back here at the place of rest, at the place of rest. I took a nap. I shouldn't have taken a nap. When I took a nap, the, the scroll that was given to me at the, at the wicket gate, I, I dropped it and I lost it. And I didn't think I was going to be able to get into the celestial city because I didn't have my ticket to get in. But, but I fought and I fought and I fought. And fortunately, you know, by, 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 by the one who, who called me, I was able to, to have the strength to do it. And, and that's just it. It's understanding. We do make mistakes along the way. We do sin along the way. We're not perfect. But even at that, when we realize that we've sinned against God, it hurts. It should hurt. It should say, you know what? I've offended the one who loves me more than anyone else. I've violated my marriage covenant. I've adulterated the most important thing in my life. And, and that's where it comes down. So as, as we come in today and we wrap it up, I, I want to encourage you, read through the book of Isaiah. I'm, I'm, Hosea, not Isaiah. Isaiah will take you all week. <laughs> He's long. Hosea is a short read. Read through it. Take some notes. Begin to read through it over and over and over again. And then ask God to, to show you in your life. You know, say, God, I want you to show me in my life. What are the things, what are the things in my life that have the ability to send me after other gods? I want to know what those things are. I want to get rid of those things. 
because I want to be a faithful, faithful spouse to you. I want to be faithful. I want to please you. I want to know you more. I want to experience you more. And I want to be able to pass that down to the next generation. I want the people around me to see that. I want to be drawn to it because ultimately that's the journey. That's the journey. And that's where Hosea is coming in and saying, look, we're going to get you folks back on the journey. I'll do whatever it takes because I'm a God of love. I'll marry a prostitute if that's what it takes. I'll do whatever it takes because I'm a God of love. And I want to move you to where I created you to be. Father, let's, let's pray. Father, we uh, <clears throat> come before you thanking you, thanking you for your grace and your mercy, for the amazing truth that you give to us in your word. Father, we thank you that, that you speak to us in, in ways that are very, very simple, very easy to see and very easy to understand. That you speak in language that goes to the very heart of who we are. And Father, we thank you most of all that you're a God of grace and mercy. A God who's paid the penalty for our sin and puts us on a path of life. Father, we pray that as your people we would be seeking you with all of our being, that we would desire you above all else and that we would strengthen the foundation that you've given to us. And build and build strong, strong Christian lives, strong Christian homes, a strong church, a people who reflect you to the world around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, this morning I want to challenge you to just to look inside and see what, what's in me. What is it that's in me? What do people see when they look at me? What does God see when he looks at me? Am I pleasing to him? Am I pleasing him in my life, in my language, in my entertainment, in my desires, and the things I hunger for, in the way that I invest, and everything else? Am I pleasing God? Because I think as we come into the year, this is where when we talk about extravagant love, this is where the rubber hits the road. Let's stand.